I want to say welcome to all of you, especially those of you who are guests, especially those of you at the bridge joining us via video out in Glendive. I hope it's a bright sunny day in Glendive today. And we've been looking at the final week of Christ's life on earth as he had known it for the roughly 33 or so previous years in a series that we call Finale. And we like that title because it means an intentional planned ending. It's not an accident. It didn't just abruptly come to an end. It was planned, scripted. And we talked first a couple of weeks ago, if you recall, about the triumphal entry, which occurred on Palm Sunday. That was sort of the launch event of Jesus' final week. Today is Palm Sunday, by the way. A couple thousand years ago, this is the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, and people were laying palm fronds and such, and worshiping him as he announced, uh, they announced his arrival in Jerusalem, sort of the inaugural event of that Passion Week of Christ. And then last week, Pastor Sam did a wonderful job talking to us about the Last Supper, the stuff that went on around one of Jesus' final formal gatherings with his disciples. And today we're going to step forward, we're going to fast forward a bit to what actually happened on this coming Friday, which is Good Friday, the day that Jesus Christ hung on the cross and died. And we can get real academic about Good Friday we can get real academic about Jesus hanging on the cross. We know, for example, that around 9 o'clock on Good Friday morning, Jesus was nailed to a T-shaped cross, would have been a bit taller than this one, which was then hoisted vertically, dropped into a hole in the ground. We know, academically speaking, that he lasted about six hours or so until about 3 p.m. that afternoon. In that span of about six hours. We know that he was offered a mixture of wine and myrrh, which would have acted as a mild analgesic, a mild pain-relieving formula. He politely declined, however. We also know that Simon was the man who was charged with carrying the cross beam of Jesus' cross on the final leg to Golgotha. That was the place where Jesus was crucified. And that once Simon arrived on Golgotha, he would have tossed that beam onto the ground and then Jesus would have been quite forcefully thrust onto his back against that cross beam, pressing his already shredded shoulders against the rough wood. There would have been a certain Roman soldier who was charged with the grisly task, and I mean grisly task, of nailing Jesus to that cross. He would have felt for the depression at the front of Jesus' wrist, he then would have grabbed a heavy square wrought iron nail and driven it through Jesus' wrist several inches deep into the wood of that crossbeam. He would have very quickly moved to the other side of Christ, repeated the exact same action there, using caution not to pull his arms too tight, but permitting some freedom of movement. That crossbeam would have then been attached to the upright column of the cross, still on the ground. Jesus' left foot would have then been pressed backward against the right foot, both feet extended, toes facing downward, and then an even longer square wrought iron nail would have been driven through the arch of both feet, leaving his knees in a moderately flexed posture. That entire T-shaped cross would have then been hefted vertically, set into a deep hole that would have already been there. It had probably been used that hole previously for the crucifixion of hundreds or perhaps even thousands of other common criminals. And with Jesus hanging on that cross, you could at that point say that he had been crucified. Jesus Christ had been crucified. And there begins the hours ticking by. 
And as the hours passed, Jesus' body would have been sagging lower and lower on that cross. It would have been putting more and more weight on the nails that were through his wrist. Beyond excruciating pain would have shot down his fingers, up his arms, exploding pain impulses in his brain. Jesus would have then pushed himself upward with his feet to avoid the stretching torment on his wrists. But that meant that he had to put his full weight on the nail that was driven through both of his feet. Once again, only searing agony of that giant spike tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. And the hours continued to tick by. Jesus' arms would, of course, as you would imagine, began to fatigue. Great waves of cramps swept over all of the muscles in his body, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With those cramps came the inability to push himself upward for periods of time. Hanging then only by his arms, pectoral muscles nearly paralyzed, the intercostal muscles are unable to act then. Every breath, no matter how short, was a fight that every single muscle in his body was involved in. Sure, Jesus can draw air into his lungs, but he can't exhale, see. That means, see, that it didn't take too long for carbon dioxide to build up in his lungs, in his blood, in his muscles, which caused in part the cramps to subside. Sporadically then, Jesus would have been able to push himself up to exhale as well as draw in life-giving oxygen without any question. It's at sort of this point in the crucifixion process, this time frame, that Jesus would have uttered those seven short sentences we have recorded uh, in no particular order, Matthew 27, verse 46. About three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, for he's looking on the soldiers who are gambling for his clothes, and here's what he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And then Luke 23, 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you, speaking to the criminal at one side of him, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 46, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Imagine that. Jesus is hanging on the cross, enduring everything that we've just unpacked, and he's looking out for his mom. He's thinking about his mother in those moments. And then John 19, 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And then John 19, 30. When Jesus tasted, he said, it is is finished. Hours and hours of boundless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as the tissue was torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down, scraping against the rough timber of the cross. And then, on top of all that, as if it's not bad enough already, another new agony begins of the terrible, crushing pain, deep in his chest as the pericardium, that 
sack that encloses his heart slowly began to fill with liquid and began to compress and squeeze in on his heart. Now we know that Jesus' earthly life is almost over. The loss of tissue fluids, it's reached a critical level. His heart is so squeezed, so compressed, that it's struggling with every beat to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. His tortured lungs are making frantic efforts to draw in just small, small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus' earth suit, if you will, is now in extremes. He, as a matter of fact, would have likely been able to feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And with one final surge of strength, he once again presses his torn, shredded feet against that nail, straightens his legs, takes a deep, deep breath, and utters what was his final cry. And you know the story, don't you? In order that their Sabbath day not be profaned, the Jews asked that the condemned men be finished off and taken down from their crosses. Now, the common method of hurrying a crucifixion death along was by the breaking of the victim's legs. This, you see, prevented the victim from being able to push himself upward, meaning the tension could not be relieved from the muscles on his chest. Suffocation occurred quite rapidly. The soldier went ahead and broke the legs of the two thieves who had been sentenced to die with Jesus, indicating they were likely still alive at this point. But when the soldiers came to Jesus, they saw this wasn't necessary. But just to be sure that he was actually dead, the soldier took a lance and drove it through the fifth inner space or so between the ribs, upward through that pericardium and into the heart. And we read this in John 19, 34, the account of what exactly happened. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. There's this escape of watery fluid from the sack surrounding Jesus' heart, thus evidencing that Jesus was indeed actually dead. He hadn't just swooned. He hadn't just passed out. He was actually dead. Dead. And I hear all of that, and it raises what is for me quite a haunting question one that bears all of our consideration in this week approaching Easter, and it's this one. Were you there? Were you there on that first Good Friday at the crucifixion of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ? Were you there? Now, of course, literally speaking, we know the answer, don't we? It's no. We weren't actually present at the crucifixion of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. None of us were, a couple thousand years ago. And yet, at the same time that we answer no to that haunting question, were you there? The very real answer to that question is yes. Yes, we were there. Because see, in a very real way, we were all there as Our sin, remember, it was our sin, yours, mine, our sin was placed upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. Isaiah fleshes this out for us a bit, Isaiah 53, 6. You can turn there or you can follow along on the screens. Here's what the Bible says, the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Now, those first two sentences of Isaiah 53, 6, that is our story, folks. 
all of our story. Now, uh, it's not a very self-esteem building thing to be compared to a sheep, is it? That's not very cool or fun or flattering. But that's our story before Christ. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. We're doing our own thing saying, God, I don't give a rip what you say or what you think. We're doing our own thing. And then the prophet Isaiah introduces this fantastic little three-letter word, yet. So you see, while all of that's going on, while we're straying like sheep, doing our own thing, going our own way, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's what's going down on that first Good Friday. The sins of all of us laid, picture that, on Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross. All of our sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gets at this as well. Check this out. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. Get that. And understand the power that's loaded up in those words. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. Some versions render it to be sin on our behalf. God made Christ to be sin on our behalf. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Unbelievable. Were you there? Absolutely you were there. Your sin was very much so there. Romans 6, I won't unpack it for you now. I'd invite you to look at it on your own this week. Speaks of us, Romans 6 does, of us being united with Christ via the water baptism deal in Jesus' death and then, of course, in his rising, which we'll celebrate next weekend, in his resurrection. That's, see, the symbolism that's in view when we baptize people with water. Those of you who've been a part of one around here, you know that most of the time we do that in hot tubs in people's backyards. Keeps us from having to break through ice in the dead of winter and such. Not very fun, as you'd imagine. But when we baptize someone, usually in a hot tub, we put them down under the water sea, symbolizing death and burial of Jesus Christ. They're identifying with his death and with his burial. And it's a cool deal we do. We don't leave them under the water. We go ahead and lift them back out, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The symbolic act of our own personal participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Were you there? Better believe you were there. We were all there. Our sin was placed on Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross. That means he felt the weight, the unbelievable weight of my sin. He felt the unbelievable weight of my most dark and evil deed. And we're going to flash that up on the screen now. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yours too. He felt the weight of all of it. He took the punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, that we all earned, and he paid the price for you and he paid the price for me. Why? 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 For no other reason except that he loves you that much. He loves you that much. He loves you enough to go to those lengths to bring you into relationship 
with him. Were you there? Yes, absolutely, very much so. We were all there. 17th century painter, again named Rembrandt, you're probably familiar with his work. He was so stricken with this reality of his own personal involvement in Christ's crucifixion that he painted this piece right here. It's called The Raising of the Cross, and there it is, right there. And he actually painted himself right in there. The guy with the funny looking hat on, that's him. He kept himself in modern clothing, see, to emphasize his understanding that he was present with Jesus as he hung on the cross dying. We were all there, every last one of us. And with the time that we have remaining today, I invite you today to come to the cross. And I invite you to reflect to the core of your being on what the death of Jesus Christ means for you very personally and then for the world, for every other person on planet Earth. And I invite you to come to the cross today, but, but don't come empty-handed. Bring some things with you. Number one, bring your sin to the cross. Bring your sin to the cross. And in order for this week to carry the weight that I think it deserves, I believe we're well served to set our hearts in a posture of repentance this week. You see, we'd all do ourselves very well to gather around the foot of the cross and honor Jesus' death for us because of our sin by searching our hearts and our souls for the behaviors and for the places and for the attitudes where we have turned away from him and get about setting those right with him. The behaviors and the places and the attitudes where we have turned from him. How, when, where, what attitudes do you carry that are disobedient to God and then bring them to the cross and confess them and clean them up. Ask God for his forgiveness. Declare your intention never to travel that same path again. Unload at the foot of the cross the weight of the sin that you've been carrying. It's this really weird deal that we almost all do. Most of us choose to carry our sin along with us instead of running to the cross instead of running to Jesus and depositing it there where we find forgiveness and cleansing and newness. And instead of that, we just lug it around with us. It's like we got a backpack on and we're chucking boulders representing our sin into that backpack. And of course, we don't like it. We feel badly about it. But it's probably because of the shame we feel for the stuff that's in that backpack that we don't just take it to Jesus straight away and be done with it. It's like we're ashamed to admit, yep, I did that again. Yep, I did that again. Yep, I thought that way again. What if we as a community didn't lug our sin around any longer? What if instead we were people who when we found ourselves in sin, we ran to the foot of the cross to clean it up with the only one who has the power to forgive us? Will you be a person who rushes to the foot of the cross and actually follows the directive of 1 John 1, 9? Here's what the Bible says. But if we confess our sin to him, air it out. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And that's our story as well, folks. Not a pleasant word. Not a pleasant picture, but that's our story. Wickedness to the core, and that is a promise. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we just take it to him, when we just confess it. 
And what we find when we follow the directive of 1 John 1, 9 will actually blow our minds. Because you see, when we bring our sin to the cross, what we find is it's already there, isn't it? Our sin isn't a surprise to Jesus. It's not a surprise to God. Instead, we find that Jesus has already carried it, been carrying it. It's already on his shoulders. That he's already taken the eternal penalty of it on our behalf. He's just waiting for us to let it go, to put it down, to trust him with it. And then to walk away free and whole and new. Will you come to the cross and will you bring your sin and will you receive forgiveness from the one who can forgive? Bring your sin to the cross. Number two, bring your gratitude to the cross. This follows, number one, very well. Bring your gratitude to the cross because, you know, as I think about the cross, I think about what it cost God. I think about that account medically and sort of academically speaking of what Jesus Christ endured because of my sin, how much it pained him to hang up there for me, for you, for all of us. I don't know about you, but I am moved to a place of almost immeasurable gratitude. What can I say? Words fall far short. Thank you seems very meager, doesn't it? The truth is, see, we were all sentenced to an eternity spent apart from God because of this chasm of sin that existed between us and him. It's a death sentence, really, isn't it? And imagine with me that sentence being handed down in a courtroom setting, and you hear the judge pronounce the verdict, guilty as charged. And then you hear the sentence handed down, death. And then you hear something quite remarkable, something almost unheard of. A man from the back of the room steps forward, approaches the guards who have you by the arms, and gently removes the guards' hands from you. He then offers his own arms, his own wrists, to the guard who places the handcuffs on him and then quickly and quietly marches him off to prison, to die in your place. And the judge looks down at you and says, you're free to go. Because that man stepped up and took your punishment, took your penalty. How would you feel toward that man who took your place? How would you feel? Here's an even better question. How do you feel toward that man? The God man, Jesus Christ, who did did take your place. Incredible gratitude. Indebted permanently. Perhaps even if you're like me, a wee bit guilty that someone else took the punishment that you earned, that you deserved, that was fit for you and friends. That's our story. That's us. But life goes on, doesn't it? And we get busy and we quickly forget the price that was paid for us to be spared the death penalty that we deserve. Yeah, that's nice. And ingratitude amazingly creeps in to our lives. And as we run up to Easter this week, would you remember that Jesus Christ gave his life so that you could live? And as you remember, would you be grateful? Would you be grateful and bring that gratitude with you to the cross? Bring your sin to the cross. Bring your gratitude to the cross. Number three, bring your burdens to the cross. 
There's a book, some of you have probably read it, called Pilgrim's Progress. It's pretty old and a little thick and a little hard to understand. But in it, the pilgrim, a guy named Christian, he realizes how heavily saddled he is by the burdens that he carries. And here's what he says. I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, he says, staggering under its weight. And the story goes on a bit, and Christian approaches a hill interestingly called Calvary, the place where Jesus was put to death. And the book says, Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run. But not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. That's a burial place, a tomb, a grave, a sepulcher. And just as Christian approached the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders, fell from his back and began to tumble and continued until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I saw it no more, he says. You talk about a picture. How many of us sitting right here today are saying with Christian, I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower in the grave and you're just lugging it and it is wearing on you and wearing on you and you're staggering under its weight but the truth is that as we come to the cross of Jesus Christ every last burden that we carry the sorrows we bear all of the things of life that so weigh us down all the things of life that threaten to sink us can slide from our backs tumble down that hill and into the mouth of the grave of Jesus Christ but that's not going to happen automatically you have to choose to let it go you have to choose to put it down you have to choose to trust Christ with them you must give those up to him Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. there's a typo on your notes page. It's my fault. Copy and paste error. My bad. The real version is on the screens. Here's what it says. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That, folks, is a promise from the one who keeps his promises. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place when you feel burdened by the pressures of life, sorrow, heartache, and pain, the cross is the place to be. The Apostle Paul understood this reality, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. We are pressed on every side by troubles. No show of hands, but how many of you would say that's your story today? We are pressed on every side by troubles. But how many of you today can say with Paul, but we are not crushed and then Paul goes on we are perplexed but not driven to despair is that your story we are hunted down but never abandoned by God that might be you we get knocked down but we are not destroyed through suffering our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies and see, as much as the cross of Jesus Christ is a place of death, it is also paradoxically the place of life, isn't it? That's what Paul is getting at when he says that we share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can also be seen. Which leads to the fourth thing that you're invited to 
bring to the cross, your friends. And by friends, I don't just mean friends. By friends, I mean anyone, family, coworkers, neighbors, classmates, roommates, family, it doesn't matter. Bring them to the cross. You see, this life that we're living in Jesus Christ, it is designed to be on display. It is made to be seen by others, shared with others, made known to others. And there's this fantastic progression about this. We come to the cross, we bring our sin, we bring our burden, we lay them down, we experience this grateful heart for what Jesus has done for us, which is all not intended to be kept a secret. This is my little deal. Stay away. Nothing like that. It is meant and made to be on display for all to see. And that's the simple essence of what it is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. How many of us hear the word witness and we freak out, oh my gosh. Leave that to someone else, please. Do not call my number on that deal. But the essence of being a witness is simply sharing the story of what God has done for you. And has God done stuff for you? Yes, of course he has. Witnessing is just telling the story of what God's done. You know this story in John chapter 9 in the Bible. There's a story of a man who was born blind and Jesus decides that he's going to heal the guy. And he does. The guy is made to be able, he had never been able to see, born blind. And he's made to be able to see. And Jesus chooses this most unusual method to heal him. He's walking along. He sees this blind guy. There's dirt everywhere. Jesus is looking around like, okay, what's going to work today? And so he spits in the mud. And he gets down in there and he's mixing up this saliva dirt concoction. You picture it? This mud, spit mud. He scoops some up. He walks over to the blind guy and he starts smearing it on his eyes. And the guy's going, this is gross. He heard Jesus spit. He knows exactly what's getting rubbed all over his eyes. And what do you know? The guy can see and it doesn't have anything to do with the mud and the spit. It's the power of God. Jesus might have been messing with us a little on that deal. Well, he was definitely messing with the Pharisees, the religious fuddy-duddies of the day. They, they hear about this, didn't they? And they got all fired up. They got all bent out of shape. It was the Sabbath to boot, so they're ticked off. They need to launch an investigation. And so they do. They go and investigate this healing that Jesus did. They conduct all sorts of interviews. The blind guy, the guy who had been blind, his parents, and so on. Sort of inquisitions. They asked a whole bunch of questions. Is this guy a sinner? What's his deal? What's going on? And the guy who had been blind, who had been made able to see, he answers their questions brilliantly. Look at John 9, 25. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied. But I know this. I was blind and now I can see. Bam. Being a witness for Jesus Christ is that simple. We don't need all fancy theological arguments perfectly laid out. We don't need an, uh, an answer for every single objection that someone might raise. What if they raise the creation evolution deal? What would I do? The essence of being a witness is simply sharing what Jesus Christ has done for you. Has he done stuff for you? Better believe he has. 
So bring your friends and bring your family and bring your coworkers and bring your classmates and your roommates, anyone and everyone, and bring them to the cross. And first of all, first of all, first and foremost, will you bring them in prayer? Will you bring them in prayer? And will you ask Jesus to open the eyes of their hearts that they would see the activity of God, that they would sense the love of God, that they would sense the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? And then would you pay very careful, very careful attention to the opportunities to share with them just what Christ has done in you and for you. What we're doing as a church next weekend, that Easter egg hunt up on the MSU campus and our four weekend worship gatherings here, they're all designed for the people in your world who are living life far from God today. Every single one of those events is designed to help you help the people in your world take steps closer to Jesus Christ, closer to a relationship with Him. And so I just invite you this week to be thinking about who are the people in your world who those would be very fitting events, springboard opportunities for the sharing that God is prompting you to do with those folks. So bring your sin to the cross, bring your gratitude to the cross, bring your burdens to the cross, bring your friends to the cross, and then fifth and finally, we're gonna land here today, bring your heart to the cross. Bring your heart to the cross, which means really this moment right here, right now, it is a moment of decision. The invitation to bring your heart to the cross is all about making a choice. And there's a whole bunch of the time when I know, because I do it, we hold back, don't we? We give part of our heart to God, but not all of it. We fraction off some of it and we're like, I'm going to hang on to this piece and God, you can have that piece, but I kind of like running this piece over here. Sure, we want God to be the boss of some areas of our life, but not all because, well, that wouldn't be any fun if he ran the whole show, would it? Most of the time we want to follow him when it's easy and when it's comfortable. But his challenge to all of us today is to follow him always, all the time, no matter what. And as Jesus was coming up to the last days of his life, life on earth at least as he had known it for about 33 or so years, he had this encounter. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Check this out. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply. So you get this. You've got the Pharisees. They're this group of religious fuddy-duddies, and they do not like Jesus Christ. So they're clustered up because they heard a story that Jesus had shut down another group of religious fuddy-duddies. They were called the Sadducees, and they were always sad, as their name implies. And they're going to trap Jesus. They met together to question him again, the Pharisees did. One of them was an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Now, how would you like to be that guy? You're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. Sure, you're an expert in religious law, but this is God we're talking about. No pressure. And here's what he asks. Expert in religious law. Teacher. Which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? You can almost see him just kind of. And Jesus, not even flinching, replied, You must love the Lord your God with, and catch this word, all. Circle it on your notes page if you would. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two 
commandments. And the key word, folks, is all, isn't it? And it is very fitting as we reflect on Jesus' last hours of his life on the cross that we recognize that he held nothing back. He left it all on the cross for us. He gave it all on the cross for us. And in return, he says, I want your all. I want your all. I don't want just a fraction of you. I don't want to be the boss of the little quadrant of your life that you choose to give to me. I want all of you. And so will you come to the cross today? Will you bring your sin? Will you bring your burdens? Will you bring your gratitude and your friends? And more, more than anything else, will you bring your heart to him? And will you give him all of it? Holding nothing back. Would you take your things and set them aside? And I just invite you to close your eyes, if you would. Move into a posture of prayer and listening. Just get quiet with the Lord, please. Were you there? Were you there that first Good Friday? The answer to that question is absolutely. We were all there. Because it was our sin, my sin, that put him there. We were all there. Which moves us to the next place of asking the question, will you come to the cross today? Will you bring your sin and your burdens and your gratitude and your friends and your heart and will you give him your all? And maybe there's those of you who are here today who have yet to make that choice to give all of your heart to him by stepping across the line of faith into a relationship with him. I'm gonna put it to you bluntly. If you haven't done that yet, what's keeping you from that today? Honestly, what's holding you back? What's stopping you? Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that he came to the earth for the purpose of dying on the cross so that you could come back to God. He came to earth to die, to restore you to friendship with God, the friendship with him that you were made for from the beginning of time. And if that's the desire of your heart today, I just invite you to pray with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes something like this. God, I want a relationship with you today. Come into my life, please. Forgive me, please. As much as I can understand in this moment now, I acknowledge that you love me, Jesus, so much that you died on the cross to bring me back to your Father God. And because of your sacrifice, because of what you did on the cross for me, I repent, I turn from my sins, I turn from my own path, and God, I walk your way. Starting right here, right now, today, God, my heart is all yours. Hold nothing back. And if you prayed with me just then, 
That is the watershed moment in your whole life. Nothing, and I mean nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. And it's a decision that we like to acknowledge here. And so I'm going to ask you to acknowledge that with me right now. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I did. Yeah, right there. Way to go. And right there, both of you, all three of you, right? Yep. There and you in the back, and you in the back, and you in the back. I see you. Way to go. You just make sure I catch your eye, and you right over there. I see you. All of you. Way to go. You're saying, I'm all in. Back there. Yep. Way to go. I see you. I'm not holding anything back. We're stunned that you made Jesus to be sin on our behalf, to take our place. And it seems like certainly, God, that is, that plan was unfolding and as, as the shadow of the cross was drawing more and more near, that, God, you would have said, nah, this is just all too painful, too difficult. Let's engineer another way. God, you didn't. And that represents to us a most remarkable reality. That Jesus hung up there and endured what he endured for me. I put him there. And we just say thank you. And those words are so pathetic in compared to the gift. And so we say thank you, God, and then... We offer to you our lives in gratitude just because of who you are and just because of what you've done. We say, here I am, all of me. Lead me and guide me and take me. I'm yours. It's fitting, God. So take our lives, please as an offering to you of gratitude, immense gratitude. And Lord, I pray for all of us that our declaration would be as strong and powerful as the folks in this room today who said, I'm all in with Jesus. That that would be our reality as well, that there wouldn't be a part of our lives that we're holding back from you. Lord, as we give to you right now, I pray that that reality of all of us being yours would extend all the way to our pocketbooks, God. That our wallets and our checkbooks wouldn't be things that we hold back from you. Things that we say, yeah, you can have everything else, but I'm holding on to this part. Because God, all the stuff that you've given us, we acknowledge it's a gift from you. You've asked us to steward it for your purpose, for your glory. And we want to do that well, God. And so will you take these gifts and would you receive them and would you bless the givers and the gifts? And would you use these gifts, God, for the purpose of every person in the Gallatin Valley and beyond having a chance to hear and make a decision 
that you're the savior of their soul. The one who loved them enough to hang on the cross and take their sin, Father. Help us be about that, Father. From here to the ends of the earth. Because you are life. You are life. And we are in you, God. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one who took our sin and paid our penalty. And everyone said, Amen.